here. So we are excited. This is a, a marriage class that, you know, has this book has really blessed and helped my marriage um, a lot. Uh, there's just so many insights. I would love to get marriage counseling from Paul David Tripp. Minus his mustache, from what I've heard. I've never seen him, but he's got an epic mustache. So, um, But uh, great, great counsel and, and good insights, and we're going to have a good time today. Um, I just think uh, it's something that God is working in my life and can work in the church, and the church will be strengthened in so many ways by marriages being strengthened too. So let's go ahead and open in uh, prayer, and we'll, we'll dig in. So Father, thank you for this wonderful time we're going to have to study uh, today. Thank you for uh, Paul David Tripp and his book, What Did You Expect? Thank you for his insights. But even more, Lord, we thank you for the clear truth we get from Scripture on marriage. There's so many things to help us. Some things directly relate to marriage, or openly talking about marriage in Scripture. Some things just relate to the Christian life uh, in general, but are very helpful for a Christian marriage. And uh, Lord, no matter what help you give us, it's wonderful to know that you have not left us as orphans, but you have come to help us. So be with us now in this time we have in the BFL class, and more importantly, uh, just in our marriages going forward, uh, to put into practice the good things that we learn and to see you uh, at work. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are walking through um, Paul David Tripp's book, What Did You Expect? And um, he sets his book up after some really helpful introductory material, sets his book up in six commitments. Commitments. What does that word mean to you? Commitments. That, that this is a commitment that we're trying to make. He's got six of them, but just that word within the context of marriage. How do you understand that word? Commitment. No matter, yeah, despite your feelings, this is something you're going to do. So it, it implies a certain amount of perseverance through difficulties, all right? Anyone else on the word commitment? So we're going to commitment, commit to do with each other. Yeah, there's a certain amount of determination. That's something that we're going to do. And he gives us six of them. And then he sets up the, the way the book is set up. Each commitment receives two chapters. And so there's a lot of material to cover. Um, so I, don't, I, I hope we'll get through it. Jason done an excellent job getting through the material. Um, I tend to elaborate more than he does. So I found, I don't know that I can do what you did, getting through an 11-page outline with literally time to spare. Impressive. But uh, at any rate, whether we get through it or not, I would commend the book to you to get for you guys to walk through it together. And we're get, we'll get through today the fourth commitment. We've already seen commitment number one, we will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. It's essential, essential. And so the willingness to confront lovingly when you feel you've been sinned against in the marriage, to say, you know, that what, what you did hurt me, or the willingness to, to receive that both, both directions, got to deal with it. One of his number one things, again and again, almost every chapter is don't, put it off. Don't get lazy. Don't think things will be fine. Address things early. Uh, be clear about it. Don't, don't let it fester. So we will give ourselves to that. We're going to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. We cannot not forgive each other. The Lord has compelled us to forgive because he's forgiven us so much. Parable of the 10,000 talents. Secondly, <clears throat> commitment number two, we will make growth and change our daily agenda. Marriage is a workshop of sanctification. We are not done being saved. We are not perfectly conformed to Christ. And one of the number one things that God does for a man or a woman, doesn't do it for everybody. Some people have a gift of singleness and they're sanctified in other ways. And God does work in their lives and sanctifies them. But for married couples, it's, it's marriage. And then after that, parenting, uh, which is a whole other topic. 
I mean, we're not doing that in this class, but, but just the complexities of those relationships force issues to the surface, cause you to deal with them, cause you to grow. We see in sanctification uh, in the Bible, it's both negative and positive. There are things that we must put to death, must get rid of, and some things we want to see flourish and grow and develop. Negative, positive, both are part of sanctification, mortification and vivification, um, so imitation of Christ. And so he uses it in agricultural analogies, remember, pulling weeds, planting seeds. And so we're going to try to get rid of those habits and those patterns that are just destructive in the marriage. And we're going to see uh, God flourishing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to plant seeds, do something. Serve one another in love. That's, if you want to just keep it simple, just a lifestyle of service. That's where you're planting seeds and, and seeing yourself grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And then uh, last week we saw Commitment 3. We'll work together to build a sturdy bond of trust. Trust is essential in marriage. We're going to trust each other. Obviously, trust uh, the other person to not be unfaithful in the marriage, but more than that, trust the person with your heart, with your feelings, with what's really going on, that you are each other's best friend and confidant. Um, and I, that's, that's a very important work. Now, today we're going to talk about love. You know, it's interesting we get to commitment four, and then we talk about love, you think that would be one of the first things. But, you know, he's just doing, he's, he's doing a very good job building on these things, and we're going to talk about love. We're gonna, we'll commit to building a relationship of love. The fifth commitment, um, God willing, next week we will deal with our differences with appreciation and grace. That's going to be great. Been very helpful. You guys are different. You're wired differently. You're going to come at problems differently. And some of it's helpful, actually. It's beneficial to have a different perspective. Some of it, not so much. Some of it's amoral. Some of it's moral. Sometimes there's sinful dispositions, whatever, but you're different. And to be able to cover each other's sins, to be able to appreciate good things about the differences, that's going to be very helpful. And then commitment six, we will work to protect our marriage. What a strong, when you see that word protect, what does that mean to you, protect? You could uh, uh, imagine a forward outpost in the Vietnam War, you know, you should get ready for a battle. Why? It's like, what, why? <laughs> what do you mean why? We're surrounded. Most certainly they're going to attack tonight. So get ready. So you should absolutely see this in your marriage. You will most certainly be attacked. The world, the flesh, and the devil will attack your marriage. So you've got to get ready. All right, that's in the future. Let's talk today about love. <clears throat> He's got two chapters, All You Need Is Love, uh, chapter one, and Ready, Willing, and Waiting. And so we'll just walk through this. Before we do it, basically I'll tell you what's going on. Uh, the first chapter, um, All You Need Is Love, what he's going to do is say, many marriages are suffering from a love drought. There isn't love in the marriage. And there's numbers of reasons why, but the primary reason he's going to float is that the couple didn't understand love when they got married. They got married on the basis of fake love or faux love, F-A-U-X. Um, they thought they loved each other, they really didn't. And now years later, they're reaping the sad effects of the fact that they really didn't love each other the way the Bible tells us what love is. And that's not, you know, it's not fatal, but it is good to know the reason that our marriage has not been characterized by love is we didn't love each other when we got married, not like God would define it. But, but if you're a Christian, that is the primary virtue that God is working in you. It is the number one characteristic of your soul that he is working in you in your salvation. Think about it, that you would fulfill the two great commandments, that you would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, you would love your neighbor as yourself. That is what he is doing in you. 
and that's what you will be for all eternity. Think on it. For all eternity, you are going to love God with every fiber of your glorified being, and you are going to love your brothers and sisters forever perfectly. It's amazing. We can do that now, not perfectly, but we can do that now by the power of the Spirit. And wow, would that empower your marriage, right? So the problem is we didn't understand really what love is. So in the second chapter, he's going to give us a definition of love. He's going to work through 1 John 4, etc. What I'm going to do right at, at the start is give you my own definition of love, which will be very similar to his with some slight differences. Um, I don't think, no contradictions, just different articulation. Okay? What is love? And for me, I got a lot of uh, my insights on love from Jonathan Edwards' work, Treatise on Religious Affections. And, and he wrote it in the context of revival in which there was a lot of attacks on the revival and people were questioning whether what was happening was genuine. And he had to work through what is real and what isn't when it comes to revival. So he goes to the issue of love. He says, fundamentally, the, the essence of the Christian religion is love. That's fundamentally what's going on. And, and he called it affection. And he said that the human soul has two capabilities or two capacities. The first is to analyze and understand something in God's universe just to, to understand its, its nature and, and to, to study it and to comprehend it. And then secondly, to be attracted to or repulsed from that thing to a greater or less degree, such as liking or loving or disliking and hating. So you do this with everything, different kinds of foods. Uh, it's well known that I can't stand seafood. Everybody knows that about me, okay? So if you ever have us over and you serve seafood and you've been here, I will consider that you're sending me a message. I'm not sure what to do about that message, but I will feel that. If you didn't know me, like one couple, sweet couple, you know, had us over and they served a, a very nice um, shrimp cocktail. And I ate it and was so thankful to the hostess and all that. My kids are staring at me. And then one of my kids did what kids do. Dad, you hate seafood. In front of everyone. No, I don't, honey, you know. I like this seafood, you know, that kind of thing. So at any rate, um, so in my geeky engineering mind, I came up with the concept of a number line of affection. You guys remember number lines? Okay, so, so here are number lines. All right, and so here is the zero point, what on the number line of affection would be perfect indifference. Don't, not, not attracted or repulsed. Or you can also think about a magnet, like a, one of those bar magnets in the north, south, that kind of thing, attraction, repulsion. Right? And so on the plus side here, um, this is liking on into loving, and then the negative is disliking on into hating. And then, you know, I, every, everywhere there's, there's stuff, like fish for me is you know, kind of down here, um, but et cetera. And then and on you know, everything. <clears throat> I think it's actually impossible to be perfectly indifferent the more you know something. Perfect indifference is really in, 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 uh, possible in, in terms of perfect ignorance. So I say, I'm thinking about something. Do you like it or not? You'd be like, I have no idea. I don't even know what you're thinking about. I like you, so if you're thinking about it, it's probably good. I don't know. I mean, it's no basis. But the more you get into knowledge, the more your heart's going to start moving, right? Now, in the ultimate sense, all right, let's say for a human being, this right here is the furthest right on that person's number line of affection. What, what should that be? God. God, the triune God. We don't make a difference between Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't love the Father more than the Son or any of that. We just say God. If there is anything beyond God, it's a creature, 
right? Because that's all there is in the universe, God and creatures. Any creature you love more than God is by definition an idol. All right? So the, this would be the language of uppermost in our affections. All right? But that, everything goes there. Your spouse, your church, your friends, your kids, everything. Everything you know. Same thing down here. We would say in a, in, in a Christian life, sin would be negative. All right? All of those things. The miracle of regeneration, of, being, of the new birth, is many things just instantly, instantly get rearranged. I preached this on Easter, remember, with uh, Saul of Tarsus. He woke up that morning hating Jesus, went to bed loving Jesus. That's a miracle. And, and on down. He, went, he woke up that morning hating Christians, went to bed loving Christians and wanting to know them more. How does that happen? It's amazing. Some things stay put, like, uh, all joking aside, the foods that we like, you know, the conversion doesn't change that. It just stays put. Another thing to know about the number line of affection is it's dynamic. It doesn't stay the same. You can actually, when it comes to Christ, forsake your first love like the Ephesian Christians did. You can love Jesus less than you did 10 years ago. How does that happen? How do we love Jesus less today than we did 10 years ago? Well, sin, neglect. You have forsaken your first love. It's not an accident. You made some choices, and now you don't love me like you used to. Is Jesus okay with that? Is he okay with him, with the Christians, not really loving him like they did the first year of their Christianity? Is he? No. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Revelation 2.4. I think the same is true in a marriage. You look at the pictures of when you first met each other, and your faces are all aglow, and you're so excited, and you, you know, well, there it is, right? And it's like, not so much now. <laughs> oh, well, we were newlyweds. I mean, what do you expect? I mean, it's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I understand that there's certain things that are going to change. There's a deepening that happens and all that. But why would it be an either or? Why couldn't it be a both and? Why couldn't you have more mature love, but also the same excitement with each other? The image that's been in my mind on this very topic has been, from what I heard, I've never seen it, but the, the Sistine Chapel uh, with Michelangelo was covered with urban grime for years, centuries. And they brought in some experts a number of years ago to somehow clean off all of the accretions and the pollutions that had gone on that ceiling. And the people came in when the work was done and they couldn't believe how vivid the colors were. It was a, it was a work of restoration because all this junk has, been, has covered the colors. And my feeling is don't accept the satanic lie that you can't love each other better even than when you got married. Better. I think Tripp would say better especially if you really didn't understand what love is. So what is my definition of love? All right, here it is. It's like a magnetic thing. It's heart attraction that leads to cheerful, sacrificial action. So we're going to see the second half of those elements in Tripp's chapter. I'm just really adding that heart attraction side. Your heart is attracted to the thing you love so that we use the same word for ice cream, your favorite team, your son, your wife, your church, God, same word, love, for all of it. Well, what's common? That heart attraction. Some Christians have morphed a little bit too much into the love is not a feeling, love is, a, is an action side, and I don't think that that's sufficient. I think it really does matter how you feel when you do the deeds of service. If you, if you give all you possess to the poor and even surrender your body to the flames, but have not love, you gain nothing. It's like those are the prime Christian acts of service, self-denial and service, and you get nothing. Why? Because you didn't love when you were doing it. So then what is love? There's got to be that heart attraction. I yearn to bless you. So if you're going to give your 
your possessions to the poor, it should be out of a sense of delight in the other person. I want to bless you. Not I want to be noticed by everyone how generous I am. That's not love. I want you to have your sufferings alleviated. I want you to feel better because of the things I am connected with you. That's love. Well, then take all that over into marriage. It's the same thing. It's not okay to not have that heart yearning. It's not okay to not, to, to not have that, that passion uh, for your spouse. And what Tripp is saying is, sadly, maybe you never really had it. There were some counterfeits that, that drew you in and you made the commitment, et cetera. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, it matters because of the years you've had and there's been some waste. But the point is, I really think for a Christian, the only reason to look back is to learn, re remember, repent, and then from then on do. That's why. Satan wants to make you feel guilty to no end. Just muck around, feel, ugh, I'm just such a bad person. That's accusation. That's what he's the accuser of the brethren. Don't do that. The Holy Spirit says, let me show you specific patterns that you've been doing that have not been loving so that you can repent and do better going forward. So that's the goal here. So my definition of love is heart attraction that leads to cheerful, sacrificial action. I add the word cheerful. Why do I say cheerful? You're going to, you're going to deny yourself and give cheerfully. So why, why would I add that word cheerful? There you go. It comes right from the Bible. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves someone who gives and they're glad to give. Do you want a gift from a non-cheerful giver? Think about it. Here's your birthday gift. Happy birthday. I want you to know this was very expensive. Whoa. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm good. I don't need your gift. So obviously we do function like this. We want to be given too cheerfully. Therefore, we give cheerfully. So that's, that's love. That makes sense? So that's my definition. But it'll fit into what Tripp's saying. And Jason, this is exactly why I don't get through 11-page outlines. We haven't even started the outline yet. But, um, I just, I, but I have given you the kind of basic structure of the two chapters. There's a love drought in most marriages, many marriages, not most. We, don't, we haven't done. It's, it's on the music stand. Sorry about that. Um, there's a love drought. Why? Because in many cases, the couple really didn't love each other when they got married. And if that's you, just know it. I know it's painful, but just know that. And then second chapter, this is what Christian love is and how it functions in a marriage. So that's what we're doing today. All right, so opening quotes. Love dies a natural death. It dies because we don't know how to replenish its source. It dies of blindness and errors and betrayals. It dies of illness and wounds. It dies of weariness and witherings and of tarnishings. So stuff all those ings, all that happens in a marriage, and then you don't love each other. And that's what he sees in his counseling ministry, et cetera. And then this one, I love this quote. Uh, love at first sight is easy to understand. It's when two people have been looking at each other for a lifetime that it becomes a miracle. <laughs> yeah, mix in aging, you know, that kind of thing. But no, I mean uh, that we still love each other and maybe even more than the day we got married and we've been married X in 30, 40, 50 years. Now that's, it's a miracle of grace. And that's what we're looking at. All right, so what is love? He begins with this idea of love drought. There are sadly many more loveless marriages than we would think. Often young people are attracted to each other in a powerful way, but they really don't know each other or what love really is. The attraction is based on surface things. The love drought is based on two things. Many things we call love aren't really love, and we lack a clear definition of what love is and what love does. All right, so hopefully that will not be the case when you're done this morning. I mean, already I've given you a definition at least. 
And, and here's the thing, any, any of these good, sound, theologically rich definitions, you look at it and you find yourself convicted, you're deficient, take it to God in prayer. Say, Lord, would you give me a heart attraction for my spouse, a genuine heart attraction for him or her? And then would you let me translate that into cheerful, sacrificial action, please? I mean, just take it to God in prayer. That's what you do when you're convicted. That's what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. Take it vertical. Bring it up to God. Say, I see it. I know it. See what's wrong. Please heal me. All right? I, I just, again and again, Jesus is a physician of the soul. He doesn't come for healthy people. He doesn't even come for you healthy in any area. If you bring your healthiness to him, he's like, go back until you realize who you are. <laughs> go back until you realize you're sick, then I can help you. So you go and he's like, Lord, I just want to tell you, thank you that I am such a great husband. I just want to thank you for that. Do you know what you sound like? That, that Pharisee is like, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Don't do that. Bring to him your deficiencies. All right? We can be living through a love drought and not really know it because we're just used to the sights and sounds of normalcy in our marriage. We're used to not loving each other. Just used to it. Didn't know it, but there it is. We accept much less than God's best. We think things are okay. Things are normal. We really can't expect much better. I think the Bible is, has, it gives you the right and the, and the conviction to expect better than that. You could expect, say, God, your standard is higher than this mediocrity. And so you set your heart on something and then you go after it in prayer and action. All right, after the initial excitement of a new marriage, the loveless condition gradually becomes the new normal. We become skilled at patching over holes in the wall and accepting leaky pipes in the house of our marriage rather than truly addressing the problem of lovelessness. I put the quotes there around house because I don't want you folks thinking I'm talking about literal physical house repair. See, I've been asking you to get after that, and you know it says right here that we need to patch up our house. No, this is a metaphor for your relationship, okay? Uh, we are passive when we should be active. We are, un we are satisfied when we should be dissatisfied. So Trip doesn't want you to be passive. He wants you to get up and move. He wants you to be energetic and active in, in the marriage. That's what he wants. We need to be able to get outside our normal situation and see things as they really are. So how do we know, how can we know if we have a love drought in our marriage? Uh, he gives us some markers. Disunity. Um, he gives us a lot of these case studies, and I, I have a hard time figuring out how best to communicate case studies to you. The one at the end of this chapter is four or five pages long, but they're really good. I mean, it's like you're kind of sitting as a fly on the wall in a counseling situation. They go into details of what it's like with this couple. And then you, in the way it's written, you can like, yeah, I can see some of that going on for us. And so it goes away from kind of abstract principles to an actual life being lived out. And you can start to see, yeah, we, we're doing that kind of stuff. But we'll walk through some of it. Jacob, Midwestern boy, straight laced, down to earth, no frills, no compromises. And then Aaron. I guess the names have been changed. I don't know where he gets the names, but anyway, um, Jacob and Aaron. So she's raised in Hawaii by back-to-the-earth countercultural parents. How did they ever get together? Interesting. So there it is, met. They woke, they woke up, he says, every day on different sides of the universe. So very different from one another. But Tripp asserts that unity is not the product of sameness. It's not uniformity. All right, we're going to have some differences. The God who made the lilies also made the rocks. Uh, the world is filled with overwhelming diversity in God's creation. So also God in his sovereignty can choose radically different people to be together in marriage. Rather, he says, unity results when love intersects with difference. It is self-love that hates difference and makes us impatient, demanding our own way. You need to be like me, that kind of thing, demanding that. Uh, self-love seeks to get a win. You're going to win the conflict. 
all right? Get the person to, to capitulate or see it your way rather than to be one. Love celebrates the other person the way God has made them, and it celebrates the process of working together to become one. Love celebrates the triumph of grace when genuine unity of purpose and vision emerges out of initial differences. All right, John 17, vital uh, for understanding uh, unity. All right, someone read that for us. John 17, 22, 23. So the unity, the oneness that we should look for in marriage, and frankly, that we ultimately can look for in the church with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, is based on the Trinity. Based on the Trinity. So how much disagreement do you think there ever is between the Father and the Son? This is an easy theological question, yes, zero. Never has been, isn't now, and never will be. On big picture and down to atomic detail, zero disagreement, ever. Now that's amazing. So I tried to think about unity, and one of my favorite verses um, of describing what unity between people looks like is Philippians 2. 2 and 3, Paul says, Make my joy complete by being, listen to this, like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Those are great words to describe. There are different translations of those verses. This is one particular translation that I like. But you think the same. I mean, just logically, intellectually, intelligently, think the same about what we should do, whatever. Um, he says, you have the same love. You have the same, like on the number line, same affection, and your hearts are drawn in the same direction. And then you've got... The, the same unity of purpose of where we're going, what we're going to do. And we're, we're, we're in on that. That's unity. So disunity would be not those things. You disagree. You just see things differently. You don't love the same things. You're going in different directions. That's disunity. So that would be a love drought when you're seeing a lot of that. Secondly, misunderstanding. All right, and he asked questions. Is the unity of your marriage growing? Would you say you're more one now than you were a year ago, five years ago? What direction are you going? That's the question you have to ask. Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hand and answer. I, I've noticed BFL, people are quieter than any other time in the week. Like Wednesday evening, people are ready to go, other Bible studies, whatever. But I don't know what it is. Sunday morning, it must be tiring to get up and get ready. So I try to not ask a lot of questions. But at any rate. But sometimes I need to get a drink of water, so I'll ask a question. I'm willing to wait you guys out, and then you know, something <laughs> will happen. All right, misunderstanding. It is very easy for couples to misunderstand each other. I thought you said, no, I didn't, you know, that kind of thing. It's easy to dread communicating when so many misunderstandings constantly occur. Have you ever just tripped over words? It's like, well, that's not what I said. Or you're twisting what, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's an imperfect pattern of communication, words. It really is what Paul meant when he said, seeing through a glass darkly. It's a bunch of words. The new heaven, new earth. The new Jerusalem. Words. That's it. Descriptions of love. Descriptions of Christ. What he did. It's words. All of the spiritual gifts of that teaching pattern are all words. They're all word-based. And he calls it seeing through a glass darkly. In heaven, we will get past the words to the vision, to the reality, to seeing. But right now we have words. Words are difficult. Words are inefficient sometimes. They have, you have to circle back, and it's hard. Um, plans that were simple then become big and convoluted. A lifestyle of misunderstanding is a sure sign of a lack of love. It is self-love that causes us not to listen well or to interrupt. Can I just stop there? Interruption's a big problem, especially when you get kind of into it, into a conversation, and you just almost can't let your spouse finish his or her sentence. That is unbelievably arrogant when you're interrupting. 
It's like, there's really only one thing you need to do, oh spouse, is listen. <laughs> you realize how arrogant that is? There is nothing I need to know from you. There's nothing in your head right now that will benefit me at all. But there's some things in my head that will benefit you. So if you would just be quiet and listen, that's just arrogant. What you should do is say, I think I understand some of what's in my head, but I don't understand what's in yours. Talk to me. Talk to me. What are you thinking? And then be quiet and listen. And then ask clarifying questions so that as best you can, when it's done, you really understand what she's thinking. That takes love. All right? But if you're not doing that, it's, that's a love drought. All right? Um, so it's self-love that causes us to have minds so filled with our own thoughts we have no room for our spouse's perspective. True love longs for the two of you to be on the same page. Do you live together in the joy of true understanding? True understanding. I just believe in every conflict, God in his wisdom has providentially arranged that if there are 50 ingredients that are going to go into the pot of the solution of the problem, a portion of them will be yours and a portion will be your spouse's. Neither side will have 100% of the ingredients. So isn't it beneficial then to do everything you can to get her ingredients into the pot? And she should feel the same way about yours. You should want the recipe that God has ordained. And God does that to bring you together so you can solve things together. So you've got to talk to each other, but you also have, most especially have to listen to each other. Tell me more. I want to know what God's put in your heart that will help us solve this thing. And wouldn't you feel loved if someone said that to you and really meant it? It's like, I, I know God has given you vital perspective here. Tell me what it is. I mean, that honors the person, etc. All right, thirdly, separation. Couples, uh, we're, we're just going through evidence of a love drought. Couples can get to a Cold War status in which they hardly ever openly disagree and hardly ever fight, but in which they live separately together. They know the kinds of things that will cause strife and conflict, and they avoid them all diligently. So, I mean, Christian couples know that divorce is sin. It's wrong. It would be shameful. They're not going to do it. But hmm, what's really going on? They're, they're separate, separate together in the same house. Uh, they can have a low-level logistical planning discussion. They can do that. They have to do that. But that's not really marriage. They can go out and eat, watch a movie, but it's more like detente than genuine, genuine unity. Uh, they got tired of all the skirmishes and open battles and just silently agreed to stay safe and not discuss anything of substance. They forged together, actually, a silent conspiracy to live together but separate <coughs> lives. She's not going to work on it. It can't get any better. There's hopelessness in all that. She's like, well, it's not going to get any better. So from the outside, they seem to have a good marriage. They can put on a show. But what they really had was peacefully avoidant lifestyle of cohabitation. This is not love. Love makes painful sacrifices. So question, is your marriage more a picture of cohabitation than it is of relationship? Like you're living like marginally amicable roommates. Uh, physical dysfunction. Sexual relationship can die in a marriage. It can dwindle to a rarity and then become very functional or impersonal with no real allure. Whatever happens physically between the couple feels far from love. Too often, even Christian counseling uh, books on this topic look too much at the physical kind of body, body parts issues rather than the real problem, which is a genuine lack of love between the couple. Tripp says this, if your spouse hasn't loved you outside the marriage bed, then why would you think that she will love you when you are in the marriage bed? If she has been impatient and selfish with you on a regular basis, wouldn't it make sense to expect the same when you're together physically? If your relationship isn't a daily act of love, there's little chance that sex will be. So love lies, uh, lives sorry, in the awe of the holiness of the marriage bed. Hebrews 13.4, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. 
So I love that word honored. There's just an honor that comes in the sexual relationship. It's an honorable thing between a husband and wife, and it should be held in honor. But also the verse implies it should be very carefully protected because God isn't going to, he will, he will judge sexual sin, very much so. Uh, love sees marital relating as the consummation of a life lived in self-love for the pleasure of another. Love sees sex as a way to honor the other person as sacred and unique in your life. So the question he asks is, is your sexual relationship a patient, a picture, sorry, of patient, self-sacrificing love? All right, conflict. So we've already touched on conflict a little bit this morning. Some uh, couples are sadly adept at marital warfare. They know how to use weapons against each other and to win with skill and tactics. Perhaps one of them tends to be guilt-ridden, the other skillfully uses that against her to manipulate her. Uh, perhaps the other yearns for intimacy, and then that spouse can use that as a weapon against him. So they're, they're, they're weaponized with each other. They know how to, how to hurt each other, uh, etc. In some couples, warfare is constant and peace is rare. But in a love relationship, peace is beautiful and sought after. When you truly love someone, you're pained whenever anything might separate you. When you love someone, you, gl you are gladly willing to overlook minor weaknesses, irritations, and offenses because you do not want anything to interrupt your life together. When you love someone, real lasting peace is more valuable to you than being right or being in control. When you love someone, you're willing to forgive, willing to serve, wait, listen, consider, examine yourself and your motives, and make personal sacrifices. Love uh, loves peace and hates conflict. So by conflict, I think he means here not just disagreeing about the budget or about parenting issues or whatever. It's just arguing, fighting, a lot of that. And couples do that, you know, there's triggering issues, but the way they come at them just is gonna to lead, to, lead to conflict. So in your marriage, do you hate conflict and do you work in whatever way you can to create peace? So there's just two different kind of ways I'm using the word conflict. One is an issue comes up in your marriage that you need to figure out, okay? It might have to do with your kids, it might have to do with money, it might have to do with a number of things, vacation plans, whatever. You initially disagree. That's an opportunity for you. It's not a bad thing. It's actually to be expected. It'd be very rare that you come at a, a significant topic and you 100% agree with each other. It's, it's actually, to some degree, exciting and energizing if you look at it posi uh, positively. But he's using the word here, conflict, as fighting, arguing, that kind of thing. And that's bad. That's never, that's never going to be good. So in the first use of the word conflict, I'm saying opportunity, do everything you can to get the elements or ingredients of the, uh, of the recipe from your spouse. You do that by asking good questions and humbly listening. And they should do the same for you. By the way, suppose you really do that and your spouse isn't doing that. Finally, you're seeing it my way and they don't seem to have any interest in your ingredients. What should you do? Like, you know, maybe only one of you came to this BFL class or only one of you listened or I don't know. Um, but your next conflict, you really want to hear what your spouse thinks, but you're not getting the same back. What should you do? Like take a break. I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> a prayer break. And pray in his or her hearing. You know, that's what I call horizontal prayers. You know, like God help this person to realize that X, Y, and Z. Um, all right, but I think you mean genuinely pray over time. So like, take, let's take a break. Let's, you know, we don't have to solve this today, and then you pray. I like it. Anyone else? Something like this. Are you interested in what I think? Something like that. Yeah. That might work. Might. <laughs> Anyone else? For sure. All right. All right, so watch out for faux love, false love. Uh, physical attraction is an amazing thing created by God. We live in a material world, so physical beauty 
uh, is one of the things we all care about in some way. It is one of the first things that happens between a couple that, that eventually does get married. Uh, you find the other physically repulsive. If you find the other physically repulsive, let's be honest, the relationship probably isn't going to get started at all. But the initial buzz of physical attraction has a very short shelf life. And surface level physical attraction is really just self-love masquerading as real love. It is scary how many marriages are entirely based on just that physical attraction. We often marry a fantasy. And when reality hits us in the day-to-day -day grind, we become shocked and disillusioned and many never move beyond into real love. In the same way, an emotional connection can be a powerful initial attraction uh, to a couple. They can connect, find common ground, they can enjoy the same things, feel the same emotions. But like the physical attraction, it's not a real lasting love. Again, it's a form of self-love masquerading as real love. And there are other counterfeits as well. He walks through these in detail. Spiritual unity, so that would be a common doctrinal view. Go to the same church, have the same, you're in the same kind of spiritual movement together, so you have the same kind of angle on key doctrines, so you agree about those things spiritually. Spiritual heritage, you know, cultural background, you come from the same cultural background. All of these things, they're all good, but that's not love. That's not, I mean, you could have that with any one of a number of people in that group and you're not going to marry them. That's not love. So those things are, if that's all it is, then it was faux love. It wasn't real love. And so then the case study here, Chris and Sarah, I read it last night about four or five pages long. It's, it's helpful, but I just don't have time to walk through it. But that's what happened. They, they realized, they came to the realization they really had never loved each other. And now they need to get busy and learn what love is and start loving. Because uh, all those other things had been stripped away. And now they were just in a detente. They were just like, just making it through. And there wasn't love in the relationship. All right, so that's chap the first chapter, which is uh, the problem. Now let's talk about the solution. Let's talk about um, what Tripp says real love really is. And we'll just uh, skip the uh, case study again, but let's dig in. Someone read for us First John 4, 7 through 12. Wow, there's so much in there, so much in there. You know, we, we look at, at aspects where it says in Scripture, we love because he first loved us right? That's, that's a sequencing thing that we, the implication is we didn't love before he loved us. We were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we lived, meaning we didn't love. We didn't know what love was. Then, you know, and here in this text, it says this is love, not that we love God. We didn't, but he loved us. And so he leads out, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates love for us while we're still sinners. And so the idea is he has to teach us love. So you, in general, just as a Christian, as a human being, have been loving a relatively short amount of time. You didn't know what love was before you were converted. And so this is all part of your sanctification to learn what, what love really is, part of the healing of your heart. And that's... Um, powerful. Let's walk through this. Um, he calls it cruciform uh, love, a definition. It's patterned after the cross of Christ. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. So that's his definition. Willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. And you don't have to get anything back. And that person doesn't have to deserve it. All right. That's how he's defining it. And so just in the day-to-day, there's just going to be some times that you just feel like your spouse isn't deserving. They're not behaving well. Some stuff has happened. Love really shines at, at those times. The, the ability to love, even when the person is not lovely, they're not doing well, and you're still loving them. That's powerful. It's all patterned, friends, after Christ dying on the cross. 
the single greatest display of love there has ever been. I mean, it's true. The single greatest fulfillment of the two great commandments is Jesus Christ loving his Father enough to obey him and loving us enough to die for us. There's never been a clearer defin- or dis- display of vertical and horizontal love than Jesus dying on the cross. And then he then gives it as an example. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that's why it's a new command. There was love, love one another in the Old Testament. But it, not like this. Not like this. Not like Jesus dying on the cross. So now this is a new command that we love as he has loved us. All right, so first, love is willing. Someone read this, John 10, 18. Friends, this is exactly what Gethsemane was all about. This is what Gethsemane was all about. I believe because of the word astonished in Mark's gospel, Jesus was astonished, that God showed him in some mystical, visionary sort of way what the cup of his wrath would look like. What other explanation can you give for Jesus being knocked to the ground and blood coming out of his pores? Something happened. And I think the Father basically opened up in Jesus' humanity, in his human understanding, that he would die on the cross he knew. He'd been saying it getting his disciples ready, down to the detail. That was all in place. What it would be like to drink the cup of the wrath of the infinite God, his own heavenly Father, poured out on him full strength. This, my son, is what it will be like. Look at it. Look into the cup. And with it, an implicit question. Will you do it? Will you drink it? What does he say? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not my will but yours be done. So the question, the implicit question in Gethsemane is, will you drink this cup? What was Jesus' answer? I will. I will. He was willing. The Father was asking the Son, are you willing? And Jesus said yes. So I am willing. He says, I'm laying down my life. I lay down my life of my own accord. So the decisions, words, actions of love always grow in the soil of a willing heart. You cannot force a person to love. They have to be willing. So here's the thing. I am willing to give to you. I'm willing to sacrifice. This is where, if you really understand what Tripp's saying here, I think he would harmonize with the number line of affection, maybe not that display, but what Edwards is saying, heart attraction. The person wants to do it. They're attracted to you. And by attracted, I don't mean attracted like they're beautiful. No, that's not. My heart is attracted to bless you. I want to bless you. All right? Then, love is willing self-sacrifice. There is no such thing as love without sacrifice. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You cannot love without giving something valuable of yourself. I mean, just simply with a gift, you would never give an insulting gift of like an empty candy wrapper. Just want you to know I enjoyed the candy bar, but here you go. It's like, what in the world? I actually did (laughs) get once from a guy... It was a Christmas raffle thing, not raffle, but it was like where you took a name for the, somebody in the department and you'd buy a relatively inexpensive gift. This guy bought me five scratch-off lottery tickets that were scratched off. He said, I bought you five tickets, but you didn't win anything. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you telling me if I, if I had won something, you would have given me the money? Really? <laughs> I didn't feel the love at that moment. That wasn't feeling love to me, you know, just at a human-to-human level. But, I mean, I, you know, David said, I cannot offer to God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Because remember, Aruna the Jebusite offered everything just free. It's like, no, that would be no. I've got to give. It's got to hurt me. Not hurt, but it's got to be costly. 
and, and then more and more, you got the language of greater love has no one. So the more it costs, the greater a display of love it is, right? And so for a godly wife to care for a, a husband dying of Parkinson's for 10 years is unbelievably costly and therefore an unbelievably beautiful dis, uh, display of love. And I've seen that. I saw that in a woman who died probably three or four years after I got here, a long time ago. So love calls you beyond the borders of your own wants, needs, and feelings. Love calls you to invest time, energy, money, resources, personal ability, and gifts for the good of another. Love calls you to lay down your life in ways that are concrete and specific. Love calls you to serve, to wait, to give, to suffer, to forgive, and to do all these things again and again. You probably didn't know it, but this is what you promised to do when you got married. And if you like, you know, I didn't know it. Probably wouldn't have done it. Well, I don't know whether you would have done it or not, but as you look at it, you see how Christ-like this is, and you say, this is really what I want. This is what I want God to work in me. Make me this kind of person. Make me willing to, to d deny myself, to lay down myself for the other. And then love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. Love always has the good of the other in view. Love is motivated by the interests and needs of others. Love is excited at the prospect of alleviating burdens and meeting needs. Love suffers when the loved one suffers. Love wants the best for the loved one and works to deliver it. What can I do to bless you? How can I alleviate your suffering? Everybody's suffering in this world. Some more, some less, but this is not an easy place. This is a veil of tears. Yes, there are blessings here. <laughs> But, I mean, we will see the contrast when we get to the new heaven, new earth, and realize how do we get through even a single day under demonic assault and struggling with body pains and doubts and struggles and all that. This is hard. And if we can, in our marriage, alleviate the burden of the other as best we can. We have limited ability, but if we could do that. By the way, this is true in terms of our witness here in the community, uh, lost people around us. If we can self deny ourselves and alleviate burdens, it will give... Uh, open doors for sharing the gospel. People will see that in us. All right, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation. I already quoted this verse, but someone read it, Romans 5.8. We couldn't reciprocate. We were dead spiritually. When Jesus died for us, we were still sinners. That's what we're saying. So basically, and, and I know that's a complex verse because we weren't even born. <laughs> but the point is we started life as sinners, and then Christ's death enters in by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so he died for us before we could give anything to him. And then he converts us and changes us. Love isn't about placing others in your debt and expecting something in return. Love isn't a negotiation for mutual profit. Love isn't motivated by return on the investment. No, real love is motivated by the good that will result in the life of the person being served. I don't have to get anything back from you. You know, now it's hard in marriage because if nothing, 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 nothing ever comes back, something's wrong there. Something is wrong. So there should be general cycle of love going between the couple. And if there's not, there, there needs to be some kind of conversation, but not based on that. I did this and I did this and this and this and this. And you never once, you know, that is not good. Because if you're saying that, then the person's always going to feel like, well, like you're at a restaurant and the bill will come at the end of the meal. It's like, how much do I owe you? You know, uh, so you don't want that. But there does need to be, it needs to flow both ways. But from the one to the other, this I do just out of love. Second Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
So love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. We were just sinners and rebels. We don't deserve it. You're not looking for that. All right? Now, marital love in action. Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of your husband or wife without impatience or anger. Like you have your whole morning figured out and your spouse has all kinds of issues. <laughs> it's like your problem, not mine. I'm good. I know what I'm doing today. Like, no, 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 that's not going to work. It's like, how can I help you? What's going on? I'm willing to be, what does he say? Um, complicated. I'm willing to have my day complicated by whatever is happening for you. Secondly, uh, love is actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental toward your spouse while looking for ways to encourage and praise. It's incredible how much Satan tries to trick us into joining him in the accuser of the brethren thing that he does so that we actually end up doing Satan's work for him. I mean, just be aware of that. He's very devious at that. Love is the daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. Just cover it, cover it, cover it. You know, we all have, have our days. We have things that are going on. Just cover it. There's no need to talk about it. You know, there are just minor things that come along, along the way. I, I remember, and this is, has nothing to do with marriage, but, um, you know, maybe it connects um, pastoral ministry. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said to his students, he said, it's very important for a pastor to have one blind eye and one deaf ear and no one to turn them. All right, people say things to pastors, just, just move on, like it never got said. And I, I think the same is true, like in the book of Job, it's like there are some things that Job has good reason to wish he'd never said. All right, and isn't it gracious that God just covers it and he's up in heaven celebrating and all that? So there are just some things that people say, like your spouse will say, just like cover it like it didn't get said. Now, if there are deeper issues you need to talk through, I got it, and we covered that earlier. There needs to be forgiveness given all that. I get it. All right, so uh, love is being lovingly honest and humbly approachable in times of misunderstanding and being more committed to unity and love than you, than you are to winning, accusing, or being right. You're being humble. You're listening, and you're not trying to win. You're trying to understand what's going on. Love is the daily commitment to admit your sin, weakness, and failure, and to resist the temptation to offer an excuse or shift the blame. All right? Love means being willing when confronted by your spouse to examine your heart uh, rather than rising to your defense or shifting the focus. To be willing to listen to what she's saying and to take it to the Lord in prayer and find out, what am I doing wrong? And it's not, not assuming the answer is nothing. Show me how I can do better. And then being honest about that. Love is the daily commitment to grow in love so that the love you offer to your husband or wife is increasingly selfless, mature, and patient. You know, if that really happened in, in you guys, in both of you, after 20, 30 years, do you not see how this is a workshop of sanctification? You have been conformed to Christ. Married for 45 years, something like that, both of you far more like Christ than you were when you first got married. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? It's incredible. You know, we went out, we, Christy and I had our um, 33rd anniversary on um, Friday, and uh, our son paid for uh, a, uh, you know, when you have sons that are 30 years old, they start doing nice things like this. So he sent us to a, a really nice restaurant, and we had a good time. And the waiter came, and we were talking, and we told him it was our anniversary, and he made a comment that we seemed to like each other. I thought it was really kind of happy and sad all at the same time. <laughs> 33 years. I said, yeah, we have five kids, and... And, and I said, not only do I like her, and she's my best friend, but I love her. And he just like looked, and he's like, oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. 
But you know, I guess usually couples our age, they're like on their second marriage or they shouldn't be together or I don't know what all, but um, you know, but you know, that's the kind of thing that would be a tremendous witness to the outside world. We've been together for 40 years and we love each other more now than we did 10 years ago or than we did 40 years ago. It can happen, why not? God is at work. Love is being a good student of your spouse, looking for his physical, emotional, spiritual needs so that in some way you can remove the burden, support him as he carries it, or encourage him along the way. So you're just learning what your wife is like, what your husband is like, and what they need. Love means being willing to invest the time necessary to discuss, examine, and understand the problems that you face as a couple. Staying on task until the problem is removed or you've agreed upon a strategy of response. You're like, wait a minute, that sounds like hard work. Yes, friends. Tripp says one of the biggest enemies of healthy marriages is just laziness. If you're like, I don't want to deal with it, well, it's going to fester. You got to deal with it. Got to work it through. Love being means <clears throat> or is being willing to ask forgiveness and always being committed to grant forgiveness when it's requested. Covered that earlier, but it's important. Love is recognizing the high value of trust in a marriage and being faithful to your promise, promises and true to your word. Love is speaking kindly and gently, even in moments of disagreement refusing to attack your spouse's character or assault his or her intelligence. Love is being unwilling to flatter, lie, manipulate, or deceive in any way in order to co-op your spouse into giving you what you want or doing something your way. That's devious and tricky and should not be. Manipulation. If you want something, ask for it. Talk about it. Don't manipulate or trick the person. That's not helpful. Love is being willing to ask your spouse to be the source of your uh, identity, meaning, and purpose, or inner sense of well-being while refusing to be the source of his or hers. I mean, fundamentally, friends, your spouse is not your Messiah, your Savior, your Lord. The healthiest Christian marriages recognize that. Jesus is everything for you. When you're on your deathbed, it will be the fact that you're justified by faith in Jesus, by faith alone, that your sins are forgiven, that you can die happy not because of how great your marriage was or whatever. You may have a loving spouse there holding your hand, and that's sweet, but he or she isn't your savior. You will die confident because Jesus died for you. And so it's just good. It just takes the burden off the other person. You are content in Christ. Christ is enough. When I wrote the book on Christian contentment, there's this one thing that has stuck with me, and others have told me who have read the book said this the same thing. Is Christ crucified and resurrected enough for you today, or did he have to do a little more? So think about that. It's like, mm, should not have to do more than that. That should be enough. So if you then have your marriage like that, you're free and you set your spouse free, uh, etc. Love is um, the willingness to have less free time, less sleep, and a busier schedule in order to be faithful to what God has called you to be and do as a husband or wife. So, Pastor, what if some really big, gnarly issue comes up at 11 o'clock at night? What then? Well, I don't think there's one simple answer. I would say it is 11 o'clock at night and you're not at your best. <laughs> but what you could do, I don't know, what do you think you should do? 11 o'clock at night, some big things up coming up. And you were just about ready for bed. Yeah, prayer and maybe a promise. Say, you know, tomorrow's Saturday. We got some time in the morning. Let's sit and talk about it. Something like that. Good. Love is a commitment to say no to selfish interests or instincts and to do everything that is within your ability to promote real unity, functional understanding, and active love in your marriage. So you're going to say no to selfishness. You're going to go after real love. Love is staying faithful to your commitment to treat your spouse with appreciation, respect, and grace, even in uh, moments when he or she doesn't uh, seem to deserve it or is unwilling to reciprocate. I mean, to genuinely express thankfulness for him or her. I'm so thankful that God chose you to be my wife, my husband. 
So powerful. Love is the willingness to make regular costly sacrifices for the sake of your marriage without asking anything in return or using your sacrifices to place your spouse in debt. All right. Love is being unwilling to make any personal decision or choice that would harm your marriage, hurt your husband or wife, or weaken the bond of trust between you. Love is refusing to be self-focused or demanding, but instead looking for specific ways to serve, support, and encourage, even when you are busy or tired. Okay? Even then, we're going to deny ourselves. And love is daily admitting to yourself, your spouse, and God that you are not able to love this way, way without God's protecting, providing, forgiving, rescuing, and delivering grace. Just keep it simple. You can't do this without grace. You can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's too hard. But that's exactly what the Holy Spirit has been given to you to do, to work Christ-likeness in you. I would love somebody to read this final exhortation for us, and then I will close in prayer. Thank you so much. Let's uh, close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this incredible book. Thank you for the themes. Thank you for Paul David Tripp's skill as a counselor and that we're all benefiting from it. Lord, I pray that we would just follow these very clear precepts and just work on loving uh, our spouses as you have commanded us to do. I pray that husbands would lead out, that husbands in Ephesians 5 would love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Pray that you would do this great work in us for your glory and for our joy. Uh, because he who loves his wife loves himself. It's just going to be a much richer, better life if we could have this, this wonderful love relationship. So please work it. And be with us now as we go to corporate worship. Um, help us, O oh Lord, to be able to worship you freely by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.